1: You know kind of a legend already you know this is before the war and they performed their debut concert with maybe 130 musicians at carnegie hall and when i think about african americans signing up for the war there's a lot that's in that decision making these soldiers would not be able to fight on the side of the u.s because of what segregation had really instilled in america at that time the musicians also fought, and James Reese Europe was, you know, legendary machine gun operator. And while they're out there, he takes a portable pump organ with him. story about when they arrive and play a performance for the town that people start to hear about this band. So all of a sudden, here comes this music that kind of gives them some hope, charting the course of what jazz will become.
0: Welcome to another episode of Vet Story. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And this episode will prove that somewhere in the family tree of the music we now call jazz, we'll find a very interesting role that was played by Uncle Sam. Now, I know you don't exactly think of the Army when you think of jazz, but in the U.S. Army's history books, somewhere between Black history and the history of World War I, we find the story of soldiers originally known as the Black Rattlers. And went on to be known as the Harlem Hellfighters. And as we'll hear in today's podcast, these guys were more than just a band of brothers. They were one hell of a band. So, to guide us through this important chapter of American history, we turn to an expert.
1: Jason Moran, the Artistic Director for Jazz at the Kennedy Center. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Good to talk to you.
0: This story really excites me because I love talking different kinds of music and music history. And I was amazed when I started down this path to find out really how deeply rooted jazz is in the military. Because you know, here I started with you just maybe wanting to do a story on Black History Month and the significance of this division we're going to talk about. But I come to find out that you know, if it weren't for Uncle Sam bringing this to France, man, we might not even be talking about jazz in the same breath.
1: <laughs> right. And that's really where the kind of the story starts, I think, is <clears throat> important to think of the the 369th Infantry Regiment, you know, the and they were the 15th New York National Guard Regiment before they became the 369th. But the Harlem Hellfighters, as they became known, um, were a group that, that signed up to join the war. Um, and I think, and when I think about African Americans signing up for the war, there's a lot that's in that decision making. There's one about, you know, proving your self worth. Uh, this is also not long after the Emancipation Proclamation, and so it's kind of a, everyone is in a newfound freedom. And in Harlem, we are before the Harlem Renaissance, which happens in the 1920s. So there's something about this action, this action alone for signing up for a war. And even though these these soldiers would not be able to fight on the side of the U.S. because of what segregation had really instilled in America at that time, they were then fighting for, for, on the side of France. But somehow that did not limit their ability to put their lives on the line, to sacrifice their family, you know, um, and to really walk into the unknown. And along in that walk, is are a bunch of musicians, too. Uh, and so it, so it really becomes like a kind of a hotbed of, of activism and of, of freedom, uh, searching for freedom, too.
0: The real story of that search for freedom was actually captured in an article on the U.S. Army's website by Colonel Richard Goldenberg, entitled African American World War One Harlem Hellfighters. Colonel Goldenberg writes... When the African-American National Guard soldiers of New York's 15th Infantry Regiment arrived in France in December 1917, they expected to conduct combat training and enter the trenches of the Western Front right away. They could not have been more wrong. The black troops were ordered to unload supply ships at the docks for their first months in France. The regiment had an advocate in Colonel William Hayward Hayward argued his case in a letter to General Pershing outlining the regiment's mobilization and training and followed up immediately with a personal visit to Pershing's headquarters. He would bring with them the regiment's most formidable weapon in swaying opinion, the regimental band. Lauded as one of the best in the entire expeditionary force, and as France would soon find out, one of the best in the world.
1: The band is led by... um... Lieutenant James Reese Europe and James Reese Europe was a composer who had, you know in the early 1900s had arrived in New York City from Washington DC by way of Alabama but he arrived in New York as a composer and a violinist and he was really looking for ways to get his music out so he started playing in all sorts of venues and by 1911 he formed an African American musicians union called the Clef Club And they performed their debut concert with maybe 130 musicians at Carnegie Hall. So James Reese Europe is, you know, kind of a legend already. You know, this is before the war. He's a legend um, in the field. And, uh, And I think he signs up for this war. And when they know that James Reese Europe, who really just wanted to go fight, you know, so he's sacrificing his, you know, very prestigious career to sign up for the war. When Hayward finds this out and says, wait a minute, why don't you lead a band? And James Reese Europe tells Hayward, well, you need to go raise $10,000 for me to do this. You know, $10,000 $10, is about a quarter of a million dollars today. Hmm. And so he asks this and Hayward turns around and they separate for a day. And then the next day, Hayward calls him down and says, OK, well, I have the money. So let's so you get let's get this band together. And the band becomes something that people can identify with. There's something that music does, right? It inspires people. uh, It celebrates. uh, It's used for mourning, you know. And this band was also used to recruit. So it recruited not only people to come sign up just to fight, but it also recruited other musicians. And James Reese Europe, Sought the country for the best musicians he could find. He went to Puerto Rico to find musicians down there. uh, And he brought them all back to New York. And then they got on the boat and went to France. And when they stepped off the boat in France and they played, you know, the French national anthem, the Marseillaise, for them for the first time for the French, the French did not recognize it at first, but then they heard how jazz was impacting <laughs> their national anthem, and they lost their minds. And from then on, jazz has been firmly rooted in, in Europe as a, as a cultural force.
0: Now, while the 369th Infantry would become part of the U.S. Army's 92nd Infantry Division, it would be assigned to fight alongside French forces. So were the musicians part Of the regiment that went and learned and fought alongside French forces?
1: Yes, the musicians also fought. And James Reese Europe was, you know, legendary machine gun, you know, operator. Uh, And even one night he's convinced to go to the front line with uh, some other soldiers. And while they're out there, he takes a portable pump organ with him to compose music while on the front lines. Now... (laughs) I must say that's a that's quite a bold composer. I know great composers, but uh <laughs> James Reese Europe is clearly braver than most. So these soldiers not only were ready to 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 play the song but they were ready ready to uh to pull out the the gun as well.
0: The one thing I read in my research that I would just also wanted to contribute here is that in addition to their musical contributions, uh, the regiment proved itself in combat receiving some of French's highest honors including The War Cross or the Croix de Guerre. Eventually, they pick back up their instruments, put down their rifles, and they head to, where was one of their first, most legendary performances that really told the world, this band is here and this is jazz?
1: There's a story about when they arrive at Brest and and play a performance for the town that people start to hear about this band, you know, and... And it's kind of like a thing they began to do a tour. Which now, when I consider myself as a touring jazz musician, I really have to consider the tours that I make. Really, something that's definitely in the line of how James Reese Europe and this band did a tour, because they went from town to town playing, um, and they would get into the square and they would play, and people would gather. You know, you have to. I also have to think about the audiences that are listening to them are also in you know places that are people are worried about their livelihoods. You know, they're worried for their life. They're worried for their family. And so all of a sudden here comes this music that kind of gives them some hope. And there's something about what rhythm does and James Reese Europe and his band are known for kind of like incorporating this thing called syncopation. You know, they were the kings of syncopation. And syncopation is something where instead of the downbeat happening on one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, the syncopation starts to happen a little bit earlier. So it's like one, two, three, you know, and so all of a sudden you hear these accents and something about that and hearing it from a band, from a, from, from all these brass and these drums, I think then really picks up the spirit of the people who have really been for years looking where, when is this going to end and will we be able to live in this town if it's not destroyed? And, uh, and so each performance I consider for them to be legendary because they shared something that, that really picked up the mood, not only for the, for the, for the, uh, the the citizens of the town but also for the soldiers who are fighting too
0: so true about the rhythm and the beats and the syncopation in fact here i've got a little a little bit of this manuscript that i've found from the library of congress written by Mm -hmm. ryan reft and uh, he writes in mid-january 1919 which is now three four months after the end of world war one uh american expeditionary force officer charles hamilton houston encapsulated the mood and sounds of European joy by saying, Paris is taken away with this thing called jazz and our style of dancing, he wrote in his diary. The girls come after the boys in taxis and beg them to go to the dance. As Europe was just overwhelmed with the sound and they became so popular, they eventually had to make their return back to the States. Talk to me about a very interesting day when they arrived back in New York City and literally marched down a street. For a quarter million cheering americans
1: right it's amazing that day was just you know a few days ago 100 years ago uh february 19th of 1919 they have one of the most you know uh, decorated parades up fifth avenue which is against traffic uh they march up fifth avenue all the way to harlem um and it's a it's a celebration you can watch online there's fabulous footage of of you know of Thousands and thousands of people cheering them on, um, and it's but and it must be and it feels this way because also when that band first left and when that regiment first left, they also had a, a parade across Harlem, and barely anybody showed up across 125th Street. <laughs> so oh, no. here, so they felt, you know, there was a sense of pride, and also for I think for the 369th and the Hellfighters, it was also like we have made it back, you know. And I think a lot of them were also concerned with, okay, so we went and we put our lives on the line. Okay, so now you know, what will happen next for African-Americans? It really is a question also. There's really is still a lot of tension, though this celebration is happening, um, just a few days ago, I woke up on Sunday and I told my boys and I said, look, we're going to go We're gonna go do the same march that the Harlem Hellfighters did. We're going to go down to 41st and 5th Avenue. We're going to walk all the way to Harlem. <laughs> and we started our 100, 100 blocks for 100 years and for their service. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was a... An amazing thing to just walk up Fifth Avenue and think about what those soldiers felt uh, and and the adulation they received from from this quarter of a million people who are standing out in the street in the cold. And the band is playing, too. So there's such, um, you know, this is when this is when another thing kicks in where you're, you're happy to be home again
0: and many congratulations for getting some young boys to want to get up out of bed and uh, go on a hike with dad 80 right. 100 blocks in new york city and on a cold february morning i think like, come on dad i know that i know, I know that wasn't an easy sell
1: you know, but they've heard, my children have heard me talking about James Rizier for three or four years straight. So, right. <laughs> so they so they know what it what it means. We called it for the culture. This is for the culture.
0: <laughs> now, here's where we really do need to pay attention to the storyline because it is the culture we're talking about. It is Black History Month in France. It was easier for them to become loved and for them to become respected, even in battle, because they mm. were used to people of different colors and different races. And in fact, France was, was really kind of open and integrated, uh, you know, at the turn of the century, America was not. So they had one great day in February where they were cheered and, you know, everyone loved them. What happened to their music the next day, say February 20th and for the entire rest of 1919.
1: Yeah. For the band, you know, they, they had become such a sensation that they started to do a tour, um, And their tour lasted for a couple of months. I mean, they went, you know, across, you know, Chicago, Detroit, you know, Boston, New York, you know, um, D.C., Philadelphia. Like, they really moved around quite a bit. So their band, you know, because James Reese Europe was already a star. So people were happy that he had come back, you know, and his writing partner, Noble Sissel, uh, who goes on to revolutionize Broadway in the 1920s? He, they're all back together, and and they see a new opportunity for the music. You know, a, a new opportunity for how um, the music can exist on the stage. Um, but so, so their music was in demand, and uh, and they were and they were utilizing all of it.
0: Were the men able to profit off of it?
1: So here's the here's where the the story turns tragic for James Reese Europe is because. As the band is entering their last concert of this tour, which is in Boston, um, during an intermission, James Reese Europe gets into a, a conversation with one of the drummers uh, in his band, and the drummer, feeling some kind of way, chooses to pull out his knife and stab James Reese Europe, and James is injured in the neck, and uh, and they drag and his you know they drag uh, the drummer out of the room and. And James Reese says, OK, well, I, you know, like I need to go to a hospital. So they get him to into an ambulance. And he says, oh, you know, just continue the concert and pack up the music and I'll connect with you tomorrow. And I think he's saying this stuff because he's seen he's been through a war. He's seen real carnage. Uh, he's seen people, you know, be men, you know, be mended in a, in a hospital uh, ward. Uh, and so he thinks, oh, this wound is just a flesh wound and I'll be OK. But he does not live through the night. And that abrupt end to such a figure um that is really charting the course of what jazz will become is a devastating uh moment in the in the momentum that this band and the musicians had um and so things shift after his after his uh his murder uh fortunately that the people who had worked with James Reer most closely. Uh, the composer Noble Sissel and U.B. Blake they go on to revolutionize Broadway so there is something that happens after his death where then the music changes the course of Broadway and now they're African Americans not necessarily they're in roles that they create for themselves Uh, and so there's a, a shift that changes and Duke Ellington is now on the scene and Louis Armstrong is coming on the scene so there's this thing that happens right after the death of James Reese Europe but we really missed the, the rest of the momentum of a man who died 39 years old. Um, and, you know, we can only wonder what would have happened if he would have gotten another 15 years to live.
0: Mm. And it's a story that replays itself in subsequent decades with respect to musicians. You know, we, yeah. we can only wonder what would have happened had Marvin Gaye stayed with us longer right. and not... You know, succumb to violence and a murder within his own family, or you know, yeah. uh, even even contemporary parallels. I'll make and maybe reach for it here, but I'll say like, what kind of music would we be having if Michael Jackson were still with us? Yeah, you know, while that right. maybe wasn't yeah. due to violence, you know, a situation- gone before
1: their time. Jimi Hendrix. You know, it's, it's, a, hey, it's oh a,
0: Hendrix. I can't believe I left yeah. out Hendrix, who also is a yeah. military veteran and one of my yeah. favorite stories.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I think people whose light is extinguished before their time. They also really have emitted some light that's so powerful that it causes us to continue to bring up their name because they really worked hard while they were alive. And that is, um, that is a real uh, testament to the kind of lives they led, you know, that kind of give us a lot of inspiration to move on.
0: Yeah, and you said it earlier, too. Can you imagine not having had the door opened For people like Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong to come up to New York City from New Orleans. I mean, can you imagine how music would have been shaped had those doors never been opened? And had James Reese Europe never been able to contribute the way he did? Uh, We do also keep their light alive. And that brings me to today with you, Jason Moran, and the 369th Experience. Share with me what you're doing specifically now to keep this music going.
1: Well, you know, fortunately, uh, a lot of people love the legacy of James Reese Europe, and I was fortunate enough to meet a woman, Stephanie Neal, who started the 369th Experience, and what it is is a is a collection of musicians from across the country who go and attend uh, historically black colleges and universities, and these musicians play in the bands there, in the marching bands, generally for the football games or whatever, or basketball games, and she auditioned all of these musicians to come and start to learn James Reese Europe's music. And, you know, and these kids have come up to New York and have played on the Intrepid, played up here for Fleet Week. They've gone and played for uh, the Armistice Day in, in Washington, D.C., uh, at the African-American Museum, at the Kennedy Center. They've, you know, they, and they've learned this music and brought so much life to it. And these are 18 through 21-year-old musicians Uh a musician, so they're learning about James Reese Europe, a person they had never heard of, but all of a sudden they took a similar leap, not as not as much life-threatening to a, to a degree, but a similar leap into, oh, what, where will this take us? You know, where will this music lead us? And uh, these kids really invested a lot of time into into learning it, and now they represent the future of that history. Um, and she, in the 369th Experience, really are still, like, looking for opportunities to travel to Paris to play, you know, in the Champs-Élysées Theater that James Reese Europe once played in. Uh, and so we're still, like, continuing to m- make sure that this energy around James Reese Europe doesn't necessarily end after, you know, the uh, uh, the celebration of World War One. but this is really a, a, a cultural icon, and the music demands some time and space and a discussion, you know.
0: And uh, from what I understand, there's scholarships available.
1: Yeah, and there's scholarships and, the, you know, and, and the family, James Reese Europe's uh, grandchildren are involved with it. Uh, Noble Sissel, the other uh, composer, his son is, is is a part of it. Uh, and so there's a real tie, you know, into making this this kind of uh, fabric as as rich as it as it can be to make sure it stays authentic. Um, I performed my own concert called The Absence of Ruin that I started performing in in England and took to Berlin and played it in Berlin and now played it in D.C. And later this year we'll make a recording of, of the music. So there is a contemporary version of James Reese Europe's music to to just exist alongside his um uh, his classic recordings from over a 100 years ago.
0: Now, as a homework assignment for me, give me some of the hits. What are are pieces of music in this catalog that I just need to listen to?
1: Uh, Well, you know, the one that always takes me by storm is is a song called Russian Rag. And uh, though James Reese Europe did not write it, the way that they play this song, it's like, it gets you ready for, uh, you know, it gets you ready for action. ¶¶ vigor in it. Um, That's the one that I I love hearing. But it's also, you know, ones that I think, because I think James Reese Europe was the kind of composer who also was telling the story of what it was like to be on the front lines, too. And one of those songs that really tells that story is On Patrol in No Man's Land. Uh, So they're really talking about what it is to feel like, you know, uh, to be on the front lines and, you know, how scary that is. Start the bombing with those hand grenades. There's a machine gun, the holy space. Alert, gas, yes. put on your mask. Adjust it correctly and hurry up fast. Drop, as a rocket for the fight barrage. Down on the ground, close your hand, don't stand. Three and crawl, follow me, that's all. What do you hear? Nothing near, don't no fear, all clear. That's the life of a soul when you take a patrol. Out in no man's land, ain't a grand? Out in no man's land. And then there's a moment where they think about what will it be like when they return home too. So they, there's a song called uh, How You're Going to Keep Them Down on the Farm. <laughs> they really are asking all these questions through the songs. And uh, and when you hear them, you know they have a, a certain sense of nostalgia to them, but they also have a sense of optimism. Uh, and this is what I think jazz becomes known for. And I start to call James Reeshear the Big Bang of jazz, you know. So he really, though big bands did not exist, he really kind of pushes up forward the idea of gathering a bunch of brass and reeds together and, and, and drums, and then let's see what happens. And then 10 years later, they, the big band takes over.
0: And the chapters continue to write themselves. I think it's amazing just bringing it Fast forward to right now today, how you and I could be talking about jazz and there are college kids out there (laughs) that are playing it, obviously with your organization and the 369 experience, but they're taking that music back out to their friends. And while, you know, we all think everyone's phones and their playlists are full of, you know, Beyonce and Cardi B and (laughs) (laughs) Bruno Mars and all these hot contemporary acts, uh, there's a few out there that are still saying, hey, check this out. This is you know, 1920s era jazz, and you're yeah. keeping those people, uh, you know, they become the new disciples of jazz music.
1: Yeah. yeah, they do. And this is really how the tradition continues to live on, you know, that you have people who have always been dedicated to to, to learning the story and then sharing the story. Uh, and musicians, that's kind of our livelihood is, is built around that. And so to find and locate these students who really feel that there's something of themselves inside of this and that they recognize that, that they're able to recognize it is really important. I mean, it really shows that a community is at work, you know, trying to maintain legacies. And these are the things that America should be proud of, you know.
0: And that all the more reason, I think, appropriate that we talk about it, not just this month, but, you know, musically yeah. every month, because black yeah. history is really American history. And uh, yeah. it's just so fascinating to think that beneath it all, in a very weird way, I won't say it's like the grandfather of jazz, but maybe yeah. it's like a weird uncle or, yeah. uh, you know, a family friend, Uncle Sam. Yeah. Somehow allowed unintentionally or even unbeknowingly that uh, it was going to create a musical movement that would change the ears and dance floors and and lives forever. And you're keeping it alive. Tell me more about uh, a website where I can find more information about the story or about the work you're doing.
1: So there's a website called. The 369 Experience. So it's 369experience.com. And on there, you can really see about the the students and you can watch videos of their performances and also what their future plans are um, and where they'll be next as they tour and continue to evolve. Later this year, I'll make a record uh, called The Absence of Ruin, which is my meditation on James Reese Europe and his music and his legacy. Uh, And that'll be released hopefully by the end of the year or early next year.
0: Wonderful. And of course, I know you're right across town in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center where you're keeping jazz alive, keeping hopes alive. And uh, I tell you what, man, uh, I want to make some time one evening and uh, bring myself a cigar, pour myself a bourbon and uh, meet (laughs) you at a jazz club, man. And let's hang out and listen to some music.
1: Let's do that. (laughs) Jason
0: Moran, pleasure going back in time with you. Thank you for sharing with me this incredible story. All right. Thank you.